Hey guys, so before we get into today's episode, I just want to quickly talk a little bit about one of my most favorite things in the world, which is reading. You guys know I'm a major bookworm. I'm always reading like one or two or three books at a time. Like I'm obsessed with reading and that is why I'm so proud to say that Book of the Month is sponsoring this episode of Thick and Thin. Book of the Month is a curated book subscription service that offers new and early release books to choose from each month. Basically how it works is their editorial team chooses the books and they vet them from hundreds a month. You can choose up to three books a month and it's a really great way to branch out into new genres or styles, things you haven't really delved into before. Many members say that they wouldn't have tried something new if it weren't for their featured books and I love when I just discover a new gem that no one else has read before. It's just such a great feeling so book of the month is great for that. It's commitment free, you can skip any month you want as many times as you want and your first month's book is actually $9.99 with the code SUN5 which is honestly cheaper than any book I've purchased recently. That's like such a steal for a book and like I said they're new or early release books that really no one else has read before so it's really great if you're looking to spice up your summertime reads definitely check out book of the month and like i said just 9.99 with the code sun5 s-u-n-5 and i've loved seeing how many of you guys have tried book of the month after hearing me mention it it's just one of my favorite things so definitely give it a go try out book of the month and thank you to book of the month for sponsoring another episode of thick and thin let's get on into it Welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bilotti. And as many of you all know, I took a step back last week and did not post a podcast episode out of respect for the Black Lives Matter movement and my overall muting of my social content, of my normal personal content, um, in just respect for the movement and respect for the Black men and women whose voices especially need to be heard right now because they experience the injustices and just overall racism, you know, every day of their lives. And it's one of those things where I just felt like my white voice, of course, I can be an ally and I can help amplify with my platform. But being a white woman, you know, this is about me in the sense of I need to be educating myself and I need to be learning and listening and being a sponge right now, you know, taking in all this content. But Overall, it's not really about me and my usual flowery content about what I ate for breakfast and what dress I just bought. Like, it's not about that right now. It's about these voices that need to be heard, these black men and women with stories. Of course, I can help and lend myself in many ways, you know, either by donating or just, you know, speaking out and speaking up, uh, speaking in all the ways, but really just making room for the people who experience this firsthand, who know what it feels like to be discriminated against because of their skin color and who who really just needs a voice right now. So that being said, I muted my channels last week, um, did not post any personal content. I was really dedicating, you know, the platform that I have to petitions, to donations, to just overall advocating for justice and amplifying the voices of black men and women creators. Yeah, um, that is why I took a step back last week. Many of you guys understood. I don't think a single one of you didn't understand. I was mad. So thank you for that. And I've actually also taken the time, you know, in the past week to really educate myself, um, which I think is a huge, there's a huge push to do so right now. And I love that. Um, You guys know how I am with my history with my looking back in time and seeing how things were and why they were the way they were and all that. So I've been doing a lot of historical just brushing up on my history because I feel like even though I distinctly remember hearing and learning about the civil rights movement and everything that came before that and after that, I feel like there's so much that I either just don't remember, but I also think a huge piece of it is a lot of it wasn't taught in school. A lot of stuff happened that, you know, we were either, quote, too young to hear about or, you know, our professors, teachers were biased or just didn't know how to say it because the textbooks didn't phrase it in a certain way and all the things. So yeah, I've been brushing up on my history. I've been watching documentaries. I've been reading books and donating and that's just, you know, a little piece of what I've been doing. And I don't want to be sitting here and just saying, here's all the things I've been doing and I'm so great. And like, you know, look at me, I'm doing the right thing here because I feel like a lot of people do that. And that's not what I want to do at all. I do want to inspire other people to, of course, I've always been like this, fall in love with history and fall in love with 
you know, just becoming a smarter person. And smart, I think a lot of times people think, okay, a smart person is good at math and has a good job and all the things. But I really don't think you're a smart person unless you totally, you know, have a good grip on how the world is and why. And that doesn't always mean numbers and having a great finance job on Wall Street. It means knowing where we came from, knowing the injustices in the world, and not just, you know, sitting back and letting our privilege, you know, allow us to not speak about it. And for so long, you know, I feel like I've I've mentioned this a few times in social media, I feel like I mean, I know my privilege has allowed me to glaze over things and to, you know, stop and think, okay, this is really bad. Like, oh my God, that's a really bad thing that happened either in history or to someone I know. But, you know, I'm so busy right now and like I have other things to worry about and like, you know, whatever. Or I feel like I can't change it. You know, I feel like it's like, oh, you know, that's said and done and, you know, I'm not a racist and, you know, I've you know thought that so many times and that's not enough, okay? It's not enough to sit here and say, I'm not a racist because like there's just so many things wrong with that. And I've, you know, I've heard in a lot of arguments or people on social media who are like fighting back against, you know, angry commenters on their lukewarm Black Lives Matter posts are saying, you know, I'm not a racist. And it's like, I feel like there's just a lot of things wrong with just saying I'm not a racist because even if maybe you are not the one who knelt on George Floyd's neck, you might have been the one who let your friends speak in a racist manner and just didn't say anything. Or, you know, you have openly racist relatives and you just sit there and nod and think, oh God, like, you know, grandma's at it again or whatever. Or, you know, there's just a lot of little ways that you can be racist and not even really know that that's what's happening, but it's happening. And I'm glad that you know, I'm happy. I, I don't know how to say this. I'm of course not glad that things have happened so much. So in the last, you know, few months to really escalate things here with Black Lives Matter, but I'm really, I'm, I like where this is going in terms of the conversations that are being had. And especially, I mean, just from my personal perspective here, I have seen such a huge shift in my friendships, in my, the conversations I'm having at the dinner table. And I don't think that that would be happening right now if it wasn't such a huge social movement because, you know, a lot of us on social media are, you know, Gen Z millennials and are really glued to those things, those devices of ours. And that's where a lot of the conversations are happening. And I've been listening and I've been having some conversations that have been really hard. If you guys follow me on Instagram, you know, I recently just spoke out against a previous employer um, and it was really, really hard for me to do that. But really really important and I'm I'm learning more and more every more and more every day that the hard uncomfortable conversations where you just feel like you're saying the wrong thing and you know you know you need to say it but you don't know if it's right those are the conversations that are the most important to be having because you know I've I've said this before on the podcast being uncomfortable you know in moments in periods of discomfort and overall just feeling like oh god like just I don't even I can't even put it into words the feeling but you know it that's where growth happens that's where personal growth happens that's where you inspire growth in other people and it's palpable I can feel it around me right now and that's great and so I wanted to continue just you know kind of my offline conversations my online conversations here on the podcast and you know do what I do best aka telling stories of people that really made a groundbreaking change in history. I'm talking about three women today that I've just felt very drawn to their stories over the past few weeks of me kind of looking into things here. And, you know, you guys know I did post um, a Black History Month episode on Toni Morrison. She's definitely in my top, you know, people I really look up to, like, you know, that question, like if you could have dinner with one person or something, it would definitely be Toni for me. And so definitely listen to that podcast if you haven't already. I would, of course, you know, bring her up again today, but I've already done a whole episode on her life. So check that one out. But these other three women that I've just felt so drawn to during this time and I've learned so much from reading about them and listening to podcasts about them and so I'm going to talk about their stories today but I'm also just going to be sharing just some little mindset shifts I've had recently um, just in terms of how I've been participating in the Black Lives Matter movement and how I've been feeling um, as someone who previously was just so I you know it wasn't that 
I keep having like feeling the need to say, you know, I, I'm a good person. I don't need to say that, you know, because if you just say you're a good person, that's just not enough. It's like you have to, your actions need to speak for that, you know? And so I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to preface it with that. But being totally honest with you guys, as I always am or try to be, there's been times, you know, even recently where there's certain things that I want to say or that I feel are right to say, but I haven't because I'm worried I'm going to say it the wrong way or I'm going to use the wrong words. And for some reason that, you know, the element of me not being maybe fully prepared is going to somehow water down my argument and people won't listen to me or won't care, you know, or I'll, you know, kind of not do the movement justice because, or just the opposite of justice. So injustice, I guess, because what I'm saying doesn't make sense or, you know, I have no right to say these things. And even before all of this kind of escalated to the way it is now, which I think is great that we're having all these conversations. But even before, like when I posted that episode about Toni Morrison during Black History Month, it was a very hard episode for me to prepare for. Um, Not only, I mean, preparing for historical episodes in general are hard because I have to do a lot of research and I can't just read one source, you know, because someone's life, you can't just read one source and assume that's it. Like there's so many other layers to it. So whenever I'm researching anyone, it takes a bit of time. But for the Toni Morrison episode specifically, I was just so, I mean, it was a very racially uh, colorful story and I just felt like I'm like, I need to say this exactly the right way because I don't want to offend anyone because I'm speaking about a woman who championed you know inclusivity and uh, breaking the barriers of race in her work and I don't want to fuck that up basically I don't want to do her in, in, in disservice injustice whatever and I don't think that way when I'm talking about white people from history and I was like, that's, you know, of course I want to take special care with anyone's story, but I, you know, I'm doing it kind of selfishly because I don't want people to look at me and say, oh, Katie's like, she's, she doesn't get it. She's racist, whatever, you know? And so I, I, of course I posted the episode because, you know, there was a moment where I was like, I didn't want to, I was like, oh gosh, like maybe I should just not post it. But I knew number one, it was black history month. Like this is a month that men and women have fought for, for centuries like it's important to spotlight a black woman or, you know, I talk about women mainly, of course, men are important as well, but, you know, I only really focus on women in the podcast, but yeah. So, you know, the importance of that, but also the importance of Tony's story and how inspired I am by her luckily overpowered my feelings of kind of nervousness. And after I posted it, it was one of my most, first of all, most listened episodes. And second of all, I got so many DMs from from black women, you know, that follow me saying, thank you so much for doing an episode about Tony. Like I didn't know this about her or whatever. And, you know, you're the only white influencer I've seen that I follow that has posted anything about black history month, which I was really disheartened to hear. Like that's sad, you know, and it's sad that I feel like it takes a big movement for some people to speak up even when they know they should, but you know, I'm hypocritical, I guess, because like I just said, I was really nervous to post the episode. But anyway, so it has been difficult for me to let down my walls or kind of put down my perfectionist walls and ways and allow myself to speak about these things and not worry so much that I'm going to say the wrong thing. Because if I've, of course, educated myself and, you know, even just let my own, you know, personal morals of like what is right and wrong direct my words, it you know, it shouldn't be something that I'm afraid to do. And even if my voice does shake and I'm not entirely certain that the words and the phrases I'm using are completely right, I think it does more injustice to the movement to stay quiet and silent than to speak out in any way that we can, you know, in even a small way. And so, yeah, with the podcast that I posted about Tony, it definitely taught me a lot, especially about the words I was using to describe black men and women. So I was, you know, referring to Tony many times throughout the podcast. I was kind of throwing around black and person of color, woman of color interchangeably because I don't know why or how I could be so ignorant. I thought they were the same thing, Um, which I guess so people of color, of course, black people are people of color, but there's other people of color and black people are 
their own, you know, beautiful race. And when I'm speaking about a black woman in particular, like I'm only speaking about her, the whole story was about her. Why was I calling her a woman of color when I can just call her a black woman? And I think the reason was, it just kind of goes back to growing up and I just thought that you know, saying someone was black wasn't politically correct. Like I thought African-American was the politically correct, I cannot not say politically, politically correct way to refer to black men and women. And I was really struggling. I mean, I have no right to say that I was struggling because this is someone's identity I'm talking about, but I was just, it was hard for me to differentiate and to figure out what the right thing to say was. Um, And then I thought people of color made sense. And I thought people of color was a great way to describe it until I realized the implications of that. And, you know, people of color stems from, quote, colored people. And that is really, you know, putting us back into the Jim Crow, you know, era. And it was just a super racist phrase. Um, And, you know, someone pointed that out to me in my DMs. And I was like, wow, I did not know that. And so now I've recently learned um, BIPOC, so Black Indigenous People of Color, um, which, you know, acknowledges that not all people of color face an equal level of injustice. You know, specifically naming Black and Indigenous people signifies that they are the ones who've suffered the most under things like white supremacy, imperialism, classism, colonialism, racial injustices, just inequality, systemic oppression, all of those things. In a nutshell, there is no excuse for the fact that I haven't spoken up sooner about certain people and certain issues just because I'm fearful of saying the wrong thing. There's no excuse for that. It is cowardly, honestly. Um, And so I've since changed my ways. I've decided, number one, to do some reading, to do my homework and figure out what the phrases are that I should be using. And although I might not be fully right when I speak, you know, offhand, it's important for me to have this in the back of my mind and to know how certain words and phrases affect people to listen to the criticism I'm given um, and to overall just speak up even if my voice shakes a little bit and I don't know if I'm right you know and I just you got to speak from what feels right to you and what feels wrong to you and you know people will call you out sometimes so taking a quick little break to introduce a sponsor this episode of thick and thin is sponsored by skillshare you guys know i've spoken at great lengths about skillshare before because it's one of my favorite resources for learning in terms of graphic design and creative endeavors it's what i use personally and so i'm very ready to recommend it to you guys i really love skillshare it's basically an online learning community with thousands of inspiring classes for creative and curious people you can explore new skills, deepen existing passions, and just get lost in creativity. It's really great, especially for this time when you really do have some extra time on your hands to dabble and to figure out what you like to do. Some of the class topics that I particularly like are graphic design, illustration, photography, film and video, things like that. And one of the classes that I plan on taking next is actually called Instagram Poetry. Create personal visual vignettes for self-expression on Instagram. That's such a cool concept. Basically, it just breaks up your routine of a day spent indoors. You can really explore workshops, classes, and it really just makes you feel accomplished and proud of yourself for learning something new. Skillshare champions membership with meaning. They believe that a strong community is essential in times of hardship like these. So you can tap into the support of fellow creatives on Skillshare who provide encouragement, communication, and inspiration. Um, There's drawing, writing, and journaling classes that could be a really great way to help manage your stress right now and practice mindfulness. And my listeners get a special offer to get two free months of premium membership at Skillshare, all you have to do is go to Skillshare.com slash thick and thin. That's thick, the letter N, thin. And you can get two months of free premium membership at Skillshare. So check it out, explore your creativity, try something new. You will not regret it. And that's fine. Honestly, that's how growth happens is having people constructively tell you that you're wrong or I mean, maybe not with your opinion, but the way you're phrasing something, if you're using a word that is dated and doesn't make sense, like, you know, having people tell you that is how you learn. So I have slowly let my, you know, ego and all those things kind of sit down and I'm listening. I'm, you know, I'm listening, I'm learning, I'm doing 
my part and what everyone should be doing should be doing long before all of this came to be a social thing it's you know or social being like on social media you know it's something we should we should always have been doing you know really researching and looking into things and listening to people uh you know just people that aren't you know like us in the sense of I will not know a black woman's struggle because I am not a black woman and I can learn and I can listen, but I will never firsthand know, you know, what that is like. And although I will never know firsthand, that doesn't mean that, you know, I don't have a place at this table that I don't need to do some stuff, you know? I think a lot of people kind of have the argument in their head, like, oh, this isn't about me, you know, like I I should just not say anything. And that's, it just as it's bad okay it's just a bad argument because um you know I did see some people just fully go dark on social and you know of course there was the blackout Tuesday whole uh, movement which had great intentions but I think a lot of people saw it as like a, okay this is my way out I'm just gonna post this black square and not say anything and that is just that's just not right that's just not what the whole point of it was I don't think um so I mean, it's it's about finding what works for you. If that means taking a lot of conversations offline and talking to people in person and advocating for black rights in person, that's fine. But I think if you're going to go as far as to post a black square, you need to kind of put your money where your mouth is and maybe do some stuff. I don't know. <laughs> that's just what I think. Um, and that's my opinion. So yeah, uh, anyway, that is all I'm going to say for now, um, just about the learnings I've been processing and just things more so about me. Um, I definitely want to get into the stories of the women I'll be speaking about today, which are just three of the just so many, there's just so much rich, rich history um, involved in the black community. And I feel like so much of it just was not taught to me in school. And that is so messed up. Like if you look at a history textbook, I feel like I only heard about three black people in the whole textbook and one of which was MLK. And I feel like, you know, there's just, there's just so much that has, that's missing from the narrative. And I hope to fill it a little bit and do a little bit of that justice there because of course I'm not a master storyteller slash historian but I've, I've done my I've done my homework and I have some good stories to share so I'm going to get into those I'm going to you know kind of tie up tie up everything at the end with a few more kind of parting things and action steps and such but let's get into the stories so imagine this you know I'm going to paint a little picture for you guys a six-year-old girl walks a few blocks from her house to school every day and every single day that she's walking to school there's a crowd surrounding her these people were around the same age as her parents and her grandparents their faces are animated their voices are loud and they're waving flags and signs and the six-year-old who grew up in new orleans thought to herself this looks like mardi gras she didn't know that their shouts were crude condescending Their signs were racist, and they wanted her gone. They thought that she was a threat. A six-year-old who could barely tie her own shoes was a threat. The little girl was largely unfazed by it all. She didn't really know what's going on. She was that age where she really didn't think that anyone could have bad intentions until she saw a woman holding a coffin with a black baby doll inside of it, yelling in her face. She realized then that it wasn't Mardi Gras. It was a sea of white faces against her a six-year-old girl. Her name was Ruby Bridges. Ruby Bridges was the first black child to attend an all-white elementary school in the South. She had to be escorted to and from school, even though her school was three blocks away from her house or something like that, by U.S. Marshals because the threats against her were so menacing. The U.S. Marshals that escorted her to school reflected later on saying that she showed a lot of courage. She never cried. She didn't whimper. She just marched along like a little soldier, and we're all very proud of her. When she entered school, white parents began pulling their kids out, saying, oh, my kid's not going to go to school with a black girl. Um, Imagine what that conversation looked like, guys, you know, like a kid asking their mom, you know, why can't I go to that school anymore? Like, why can't I go to this school I've been going to for years? Oh, because this girl who has darker skin than you is going and you can't go anymore because of her. Imagine what sort of mentality that instills in those little kids, you know, those little white boys and girls who now see, you know, the reason why they have to go to a new school is because of this girl with darker skin. 
like that doesn't really set them up for success, does it? Or not success per se, but doesn't set them up for a mindset that is well-rounded and open and not super racist. Ruby was very isolated when she went to school. She walked there every single day. She didn't miss a day of school only to be yelled at, to be looked at, to be alone when she was there. All the teachers refused to teach her except for one of them. Her name was Barbara, Barbara Henry, and Barbara taught Ruby in an empty classroom, just Ruby and Mrs. Henry. Ruby ate lunch alone and sometimes played with her teacher, but for the most part, she was learning alone. She was, you know, a six-year-old girl who needs social stimulation and other kids, and she was without that because of prejudice, because of racism, because of just how things were at the time, which is just so, like, you know, reading this back and hearing about this, I, my, I'm i getting just major goosebumps because I can't imagine a world like this, but it, it was, it existed, and so recently... Ruby Bridges today is 65 years old, meaning this was just about 60 years ago. That's not too long ago that this was a reality. The woman who shoved the black baby doll in a casket could be still alive today. That's how recent this was. So Ruby's family was targeted because of her attending this school. Her dad lost his job because she was going to the all-white school and grocery stores refused to sell to her mother. Her grandparents were evicted from the farm where they had sharecropped for a quarter of a century or something like that. They were evicted because of Ruby. And she knew something was wrong. She knew something was off about the people yelling at her and you know the school and her being alone in a classroom. But she couldn't quite comprehend at the time you know, how just huge this would be and how she would inspire so many others like her to to you know be in a an environment that maybe wasn't for her but it would be someday and so many many years later actually ruby's own nieces would go on to attend the same school that years prior welcomed her with very shaking hesitant arms and angry protesting. It's honestly shocking to me that not everyone knows the story of Ruby Bridges and has that vivid image of her being escorted like a little, you know, small six-year-old girl, you know, just walking next to these very tall U.S. Marshals being escorted to school with a crowd of people surrounding her. Like, I have this very vivid mental image in my head when I think of just that time and how... I, I don't know. I just have that in my head. And I was bringing it up to my friends last week, um, just talking about Ruby, Ruby Bridges. And people were like, who? And I'm like, why? You don't know the story of Ruby Bridges? You know, the first black girl to go to an all white school and kind of where it all started in terms of just how things are now. And it was just shocking to hear that no one had really heard of it. Um, so I wanted to share that in this episode because it's something that I've I just, I saw the photo floating around on social media and I think a lot of people reposted it, you know, not knowing who she was or what happened there. And Ruby actually went on, this is a funny, or not funny, it's a good part of the story. It's great, honestly. She went on to accomplish so many things, but she actually went on a speaking tour with her teacher, with Barbara, her teacher, the one woman that would teach her. They went on a speaking tour together and just spoke openly about race and racism and I love that part of the story I actually didn't know that until I was just recently looking into things there and trying to get my facts straight um but I yeah that's just great so anyway I'm gonna take a pause in my storytelling just to of course share and remind you guys um it's pretty obvious by now that I am white okay and because of my whiteness I have been privileged enough okay to think you know, of course, just maybe wistfully think like, oh, there, there could be a world without racism and without people being discriminated against. And like, of course, of course, I want that world. Of course, I think it's right for everyone to be treated as equals. But then I kind of let myself be jolted back into a reality where I don't need to think about it because of my whiteness, because my privilege has allowed me to become consumed in other things and forget about the real problems at hand and the real injustice that's happening in the world. And I apologize for that. And it's become very obvious within me that 
you know, I can do all these things and I can say something is wrong, but if I just say something is wrong and leave it at that and don't do a single thing to change it, then that's cowardly. That's honestly repulsive. Like I would not want to be that person. And I have been that person where my privilege because of my whiteness has allowed me to kind of just carry on okay like nothing's happened I can walk through a store and not worry about someone following me I can you know there's just a lot of things I can do I but I can't turn a blind eye anymore just because I'm uncomfortable um and I just wanted to just say that because I feel like I didn't really make it fully clear earlier the whole element of my privilege which is hugely um to blame here it's hugely something that has just saved me from a lot of things and saved me a lot of conversations because I am I'm white and I'm privileged and that sucks to admit Um, but you know like I said earlier I, I choose to speak with a shaking voice more so than not speaking at all like maybe I'm saying this wrong but this is how I how I feel and so I want to tell some more stories but I just wanted to just wanted to say that before it was lost um okay so I want to talk a little bit about Claudette Colvin, who I feel like when I say her name, no one really knows who she is. And that is sad. Um, because so we all hear, of course, we've we've heard, we've learned about Rosa Parks being the first, so to speak, woman to, you know, not give up her seat on the bus to a white woman, which was customary at the time. And many people do not know that Rosa was actually not the first person to do this. Um, she wasn't and she was largely talked about and I'll get into why but Claudette Colvin was the first uh, to, to refuse to give up her bus seat for a white person and she did this months before Rosa Parks did per NPR she was only 15 years old at the time and so I just find it shocking that her name is not used as frequently as Rosa Parks is and Rosa Parks has become so synonymous with you know just the whole movement and Claudette Colvin is just not even referenced. Um, and so I actually found a quote from Colvin that she, she told to the New York Times in 2009, so more recently. She said that her mother had told her to stay quiet about what she did. She said, let Rosa be the one. White, white people are not going to bother Rosa. Her skin is lighter than yours, and they like her. She told the publication that in her heart, she knows that Rosa Parks was the right person for the job, the right person to lead the movement with her name and her face and her likeness because Claudette thought that, and her mother basically told her that she is too dark, To her appearance was not as favorable. Rosa had a different style of hair as well that apparently was more favorable. Her skin texture was, quote, the kind that people associate with middle class, said Colvin. She fit that profile. And so just to kind of tell you the story of Claudette and how she refused to give up her seat, the bus driver on her bus ordered her to give up her seat to this white person, and she refused, and she said she'd paid her fare, and she was doing, you know, exercising her constitutional right, and right then and there, two police officers swooped in, put her in handcuffs, and arrested her. And she was 15 years old, so her school books were on her lap, and they went flying on the ground. And she was put in handcuffs because she wouldn't give up her seat, which I, of course, I mean, it was customary for the time. It's fucked up in my head and thinking about it, and I'm happy that I feel that way because that means it's such a thing of the past. But although this was, of course, like a very symbolic thing, of course, there's there's more problems now because it's something where it isn't as obvious racism it's more you know this of course now looking back was just insane to me thinking that me getting on a bus would make a black person get up and give me their seat like that is just so I can't even fathom that but you know while those things don't exist anymore there's still other social practices that are happening that people you know are still you know there's small justices every day where people are standing up for themselves and for other people but for the most part it just goes kind of flies right under the radar and okay I'm like going on a tangent here I'll talk more about that later but with Claudette so something actually really did stick with me from her story um I read a full just like breakdown of her life which is a great story as well um I'm just kind of pinpointing this one piece 
But she did say at one point when she was just kind of reflecting back on how things used to be and how, you know, little rights she had as a black woman, um, a young black woman at that, because I feel like majorly parts of the reason why she was not the face of the bus movement uh, was because she was young. You know, Rosa was, I think, in her 30s or like late 20s, something like that. And, you know, Claudette was 15. She actually went into kind of a rough patch after this happened and she got pregnant and she was just not the face not you know people did not think she would do you know their race justice because of these things which I think is so sad to say and she even admitted it herself which is just madness but that's why I feel like it's so right to talk about her and to give her story justice um but anyway something she said when she was just talking about how things used to be she said quote um we couldn't try on clothes meaning black people could not try on clothes she said you had to take a brown paper bag and draw a diagram of your foot and take it to the store to buy shoes you couldn't like just try on a pair of shoes like at Nordstrom And that, like, that gave me full-on goosebumps as well, just thinking about a time where, like, just because of the color of your skin, you couldn't try on the same pair of shoes I was trying on? Like, on what planet is that? It just doesn't, I can't even fathom it. But just thinking about that, I just consider how years from now, people are going to look at, like, years and years and years from now, people are going to look at what we kind of accept these days and think wow I can't even fathom that being the way life is like you know something had to had to change and I just I am hopeful that you know the the injustices and the racism that I'm seeing on social media people calling other calling brands out for racist acts and just the way that they're treating black people you know, just to to think that that's going to be completely erased somehow, you know, knowing that, of course, I need to be a part of that. You know, it's not going to happen without people putting in some effort, of course, and demanding change. But someday that could be gone. And that gives me hope, you know, thinking that someday we'll look back on things like this. And of course, I mean, a police officer putting his knee on a man's neck for over eight minutes, like things like that will never happen again, hopefully. So, okay, one more story I want to share is of Ella Fitzgerald, and I love Ella Fitzgerald. I've always just put on her music when I'm sad or I need to pick me up, and I'm, like, known. I'm, like, that that friend that's, like, oh, Ella Fitzgerald is playing. Like, Katie, where are you? Like, you must have put it on because I always listen to her music when I'm getting ready, and I've just been so drawn to her voice for so many years. I find, you know, some people get her confused with Billie Holiday, which I don't know how you could. Their voices, you know, sound very different. Um but just Ella Fitzgerald is just my go-to always. I love her music and I'm constantly playing it. If you follow me on Spotify, you could probably attest to that because I'm always listening to her music. But she was named the first lady of song and her story is incredible. I actually had never known it before looking into it this week. Um, I didn't know, you know, what she went through. So I want to tell you guys the story of Ella Fitzgerald today and kind of end on a little action note. Um, But yeah, okay, so let's get into it. So Ella Fitzgerald was born in Virginia in 1917, and she moved to New York with her mother. Her mom actually died in a car accident when she was 15, which was very sad and made a huge impact on Ella. I feel like she went through a rough patch there for a bit. She actually also had a reportedly very abusive stepfather, Um, just not a good home environment. You know, she was tried, people tried to help you know, tame her through schooling. And she actually left school, left home at the age of 15 and was homeless for a bit. She was broke and alone during the Great Depression, but she still kept on somehow. Um, And there's this, you know, craze in the 30s with dancing. Um, I've actually done some podcasts kind of touching on that. And people would go to dance halls with their friends. And New York especially was a huge, there was a huge dance scene. Um, And actually, so Ella was at this theater called Apollo theater in Harlem with her girlfriends and it was talent night or amateur hour like one of those things where you know just random people from the crowd would come up and perform and she wasn't going to she was a super shy 17 year old at this time and was just very reserved she like wasn't extremely confident in herself but she made a bet with her friends and they you know did the whole thing where you draw the straws and whoever gets the short straw 
has to do whatever it is and she drew the short straw so she had to get up there and she was you know after a bunch of people so she was watching these acts go before her and right before she was about to go she was going to dance or do some tap dancing or some sort of um, dancing number and she saw this like group of girls go before her and they danced and she was like oh no like I don't want to I can't follow that like they were so good or whatever and so she decided to sing a song and she you know the first few lines she kind of was very insecure about it and people were booing her but she persevered through the first few lines of the song and went on to just completely silence the audience like everyone was just amazed by her singing and she actually ended up winning first place in the contest she won 25 whole dollars which was a lot back then and after this experience she was discovered by the first person that signed her um, a man named chick webb so at first she was still very young mind you she was like 17 years old she was a part of a singing group um, not at the you know forefront not in the spotlight um, she was very shy and reserved and she although when she sang you know she didn't come out of her shell a bit she was still kind of finding herself at this point um you know but on stage like she just completely lit up she had no fear and she said that she felt very at home in the spotlight and so like I said she was signed she went on the road with a band um performing like two shows a day at first as you know one of those more complimentary singers kind of like a background singer or just like part of the group and then eventually of course she became the lead but that was a few years later so in 1938 she was 21 And she recorded this song called, well, it was actually a nursery rhyme that she made into a more playful, like more hip version. And it was called A Tisket, A Tasket. So if you're going to listen to one of her songs after this podcast, listen to that song because it is uh, kind of her first like big break. Um, The album sold 1 million copies. It hit number one and stayed on the charts for 17 weeks. And then suddenly after that, Ella Fitzgerald was quote famous and in 1939 she became the leader of her singing group as a woman a black woman she was front and center she played around with her voice she was really trying to figure out what her thing was and she discovered that she could turn her voice into an instrument so to speak she kind of mimicked like trumpets and other like brassy instruments her voice was very brassy husky pearly um And someone said that there was really nowhere it couldn't go. I think she had like three octaves or something. And like I said, when she was touring, she would perform something like two shows a day. And she was just on the road for much of her professional career. She sang for like 60 years of her life or something like that. So towards the beginning, there was this one kind of defining moment that she reflected on where she and her band were backstage preparing for a show. And these police officers just busted into their backstage kind of room. Their, you know, her bandmates were just playing dice you know just hanging out and they were all arrested um they were all arrested I just I need to say it again for nothing for doing nothing for just being black um and Ella said quote they took us down and then when we got there to the station they had the nerve to ask us for an autograph her new manager Norman during this time really stood up for her and really advocated for all of his black talent, making sure that they got equal rights and equal playing time and things like that. But it was kind of unheard of at the time. And for the most part, she had a lot of problems. She even got held up at the airport, you know, and asked to wait for white people to go ahead of her when she was a famous like celebrity that would never happen today, um, among other things. But there were a bunch of people that stood up for her um, in the space, and one of which was Marilyn Monroe. And I've seen this actually kind of floating around the internet recently as everything has been happening. Um, this very iconic photo of Marilyn and Ella arm in arm, you know, walking together. And I want to read this quote that Ella said about Marilyn Monroe. So she said, quote, I owe Marilyn a real debt. It was because of her that I played the Macambo, a very popular nightclub in the 50s. She personally called the owner and told him that she wanted me booked immediately, and if he would do it, she would take a front table every night. She told him, and it was true, due to Marilyn's superstar status, that the press would go wild. The owner said yes, and Marilyn was there, front table, every night. And apparently I read, actually, there was a misconception that it wasn't just because she was black, but it was also, it was just because she was a black jazz, true jazz singer, like scat and all that. Um, and they were worried, the the club owner was worried that she wasn't, quote, glamorous enough for the club in West Hollywood. And she didn't have the sex appeal because she was a little bit 
Um, she just wasn't, she didn't look like a lot of the people that were quote sexy back then. I mean, she didn't look like Marilyn Monroe, who was like the epitome of sex. Um, but she, Marilyn saw potential in Ella and she knew that because of the color of her skin, she was going to be, it was going to be harder for her to, you know, to, to make it in the same way that someone with equal talent of hers, you know, in a different body with white skin would have it a lot easier. And so I think that Marilyn was a great ally, although people will say different things just because of their personal biases towards Marilyn. And I mean, I did a whole podcast on her, so I am biased as well. I love Marilyn. Um, But some people, you know, dismiss this, but I still think it was pretty big. And I don't want to dwell on that you know, story too much because I feel that Ella really did make her own career. She really did come out of her shell in all the right ways. And she was so talented and really took it upon herself to turn her life around from 15 when she was homeless during the Great Depression and really turning things around with her life and her career. And I feel like if I was in that position, I don't know if I would have been able to discover my voice, especially with no singing lessons or any sort of conventional ways of unearthing that you know she she just found it she had that voice and I think that's why she's one of the most famous jazz singers and then in 1958 Ella became the first black woman to win a Grammy and I think that's huge but the best part about the story is the fact that she went on to win 11 more in her career so 12 Grammys like she you know got this very first one and was the first black woman to win one and then she got 11 more like that's incredible Um, And then in September of 1986, Ella underwent quintuple, quintuple coronary bypass surgery. Doctors also replaced a valve in her heart and diagnosed her with diabetes, um, which they blamed for her failing eyesight. She started to kind of lose her eyesight. She was a little sickly at the time. And the press basically said, you know, she's done. Ella will never sing again. But she proved them wrong. Despite protests by family and friends and, you know, including her manager, Ella returned to the stage and pushed on with an exhaustive schedule despite her everything. She was so strong. Um, And so by the 1990s, Ella had recorded over 200 albums. And in 1999, she gave her final concert at New York's Carnegie Hall, which I think is a pretty legendary place to have your very last performance, not to mention the fact that Carnegie Hall definitely did not allow people of her race and gender, just probably 30 years prior. Um, And it was actually the 26th time that she performed there. Um, when she performed for the last time there. And so I love the story of Ella Fitzgerald. I like after, you know, writing out these little notes, I just fell into a hole of listening to her music while I, you know, did some work. And yeah, I mean, that's just another testament to the fact that there's such a rich history of these men and women, black men and women that just, I feel like don't really get the spotlight as much as they should, or people know their names, but they don't know their stories. And so I pledge to talk about black men and women, mostly women, because that's kind of what I do here um, more than I have. I have not been doing all that I can, and I know that, and I recognize that. So that is my pledge. And today I got to speak about three amazing black women who really paved the way in their respective areas. Um, but I want to just kind of share a few more things, just kind of top line things that I've realized through the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that came along with it recently. Um So I have a little bulleted list of just notes I've been taking recently um, and just writing down my thoughts. First of all, I'm going to say it again before I even get into this, that you guys should all definitely be journaling right now. I've said this a lot, but like definitely write down how you're feeling right now. Write down what's going through your head because someday you'll want to know and want to reflect back on this mindset you were in. So that's the first thing. Um, But I also just have kind of realized within myself, this is kind of reiterating now that you know, being uncomfortable is not an excuse at all. Uh, feeling awkward is not an excuse at all as to why you should not be speaking up and speaking your heart and just, you know, declaring things, but also standing up for black people in your daily life. You know, when you hear something that is just so racist or something that even someone that you love, you know, people that you respect can be racist. People you love can be racist and you need to call those people out even if you don't really know the words to say what you do it's very simple just say stop saying that that's racist stop saying that do you even know what you're saying just challenging people even though it's hard it's really important and it's a very small easy way to combat this injustice um Another thing is just, of course, acknowledging your privilege, like I you know, talked about today. I think our privilege as white people and people that are white uh, appearing, that appear white, you know, we have 
the privilege to ignore what's going on. We have the privilege to carry on like normal and we can't, we can't do that anymore. Um, I think another thing that I'm personally working on is diversifying my friend group also, because I feel, of course, I mean, you guys have seen photos of my friends. I have a lot of white friends. I have a lot of white appearing friends, people that, you know, maybe aren't white, but look white enough to pass as white. And, you know, it's, it's not enough. Um, And what I've been doing here is not seeking out friends just because of the color of their skin. I think that's problematic within itself, but just making sure that I'm finding friends in diverse places and ways. Like, you know, like I said in previous podcasts, I've been going out into the creative community and making new creative friends, you know, and just having conversations with my black friends and not just having black friends to have them, you know, as I know some people do, um, just to say that they have diversity and that they are not racist. Like that's not cool. Um, just genuinely having friendships with people that aren't like me is really important. And I have not done all I can in that regard. And I need to do more and do better. Um, something else is that I think we should not stop at what we're taught or told. Okay. So like, of course we learned things in high school and in middle school and in college and we learned history, but sometimes we got to know, I think that this should go without saying that things that we learn in school is not it. Okay. It's not the half of it. Number one, we can't even, of course, that's fact. You can't, you need to like apply this fact to your life and take your own morals into account with it. But also there's just so much history and so many stories that we've not heard yet and we need to. So, you know, take it upon yourself to watch some documentaries, to read some books, to listen to some podcasts, to do your part in just figuring out the history of people that are not like you because it will, it'll help broaden your perspective and you know, although we will never know as white people, like I'm speaking from myself, the full struggle of black people, we can at least understand what's happening. We don't have to understand the feeling because we can't because we'll never be them. But I want to be able to see what's happening and know what's happening and not ignore it and not let my privilege allow me to ignore it. So, um, And yeah, taking time to learn the phrases and the words and what, you know, the implications of all lives matter, things like that. You can't say all lives matter um, and mean that. You really can't because it's just, I I have so many problems with that, of course, and so many people do, thank God, uh, with that phrase because yeah, of course all lives matter, but all lives will not matter until black lives matter. And right now, many do not fully stand by that. Do not fully stand by the phrase Black Lives Matter and that is the problem. And I actually want to share an analogy that my friend Chloe shared on the Gals on the Go podcast. If you guys know Brooke and Danielle's podcast, she shared this analogy and it really resonated with me. So by saying all lives matter, it's kind of like this. It's like a house in a neighborhood is on fire. It's being burned to to bits, okay? And it's like someone else saying like, oh, well, like, you know, you should put water on all the houses in the neighborhood, not just this one that's burning. And that clearly needs it. It's like saying like, let's, you know, water down all the other houses too. And that like, it's just not productive. It's really not, you know, we have to focus on what is on fire right now. And that is the Black Lives Matter movement. And we need to help. We need to use our voice and do what we can. And so that is why All Lives Matter is problematic. And I wanted to share that. And I think that is it for this podcast episode. I really hope that something I said today resonated with you and that you will find it in your heart to do what is right and to speak up, even if your voice shakes, because it is endlessly important that you do so. Um, Yeah, so that is all I wanted to share today. Thank you guys for listening. And please continue to, you know, follow me on social media and see what I've been posting because I think it's all extremely valuable stuff. Um, And let me know what I can do better. Um, Thank you guys. Talk to you next week. Bye.